Thanks, Bill. It's always great when the uh, Bible reading is done well, isn't it? Because uh, God's Word speaks for itself. Um, my name is Pete, and I'm the lead pastor of Southwest. Uh, I see a few new faces today. If you're new, welcome. We're so glad you could join us. Uh, so it's my birthday on Thursday, and uh, I'll be 46. So um, middle age, I really am a middle-aged man. Let me tell you about middle-aged men. We're sometimes a sad lot, we are. Uh, middle-aged men, we, we, there's this thing that happens, and if you're married to one, or your dad is one, or you're still one, it, it's, it's tough, because like, we, 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 we get into things, right? Middle-aged men love hobbies, okay? So we, we get into hobbies, and we get into our latest hobby, and, and men really get into things when they get into things. Uh, they want to know everything about that thing. And then you reach a certain stage in that hobby where you think, I think I'm getting, you know, pretty good at it. So for me, my, my, my hobby, you know, in the past has been cycling. Um, I haven't done much cycling since uh, COVID. But my hobby now is, is tennis. I've gone back into tennis, all right? And so being a middle-aged man, I, you know, play tennis a bit more. And it's like, oh, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm getting pretty good. You're getting pretty good at it. And what you start doing as middle-aged men getting into hobbies is you start wanting to compare yourself, right? You're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm better than that person. And especially in sport, I'm, I think I'm doing okay. I'm pretty good. And, and then you start looking at the pros because middle-aged men have delusions of grandeur, right? And so you start comparing yourself to the professionals. And you think, Joe, I wonder how, how I, you know, like, I know they're pros. I'm not, but I'm pretty good at this thing. How I compare to them? So that's what I did. Uh, a hobby recreational player like me comparing myself to the pros. And then when you start doing that, you realize how far away from the pros you are. So, for example, Carlos Alcaraz, the world number one men's player, he started playing tennis when he was four years old. His dad was a former pro. He was coached um, by the age of 15 by a former world number one. He turned pro at 16. You know, I play a couple of times a week. He plays as many hours as I play a week every single day, and that's in addition to fitness training and meal plans. Um, people like him have to commit your life savings just to even get into the top 100. We're looking at millions of dollars. And then you realize, I am nowhere near the pros as a hobby player, which is why in tennis, you can get these kind of universal tennis rankings, right? Um, so I'm about at UTR 5. Alcaraz is a 16, all right? That's how far away from the pros you are. Now, I'm just talking about tennis, but no matter what sport you're into, there's a massive difference, isn't there, between a hobby, recreational, and a professional. It's a little bit like that joke. Have you heard this joke before? In a bacon and egg breakfast, what is the difference between the chicken and the pig? Heard this one before? In a bacon and egg breakfast, what is the difference between a chicken and a pig? Well, the answer is this. The chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. Today, Jesus will show us what separates following Jesus as a hobby versus real discipleship. That's what today is about, and particularly what it means to be a servant of others. See, all Christians, all churches value a life of service. Uh, the last few weeks in Matthew, you've been with us, we're going through this theme in different ways. You know, we keep coming across this phrase, the last will be first, the first will be last, but you see, there's a difference between paying lip service to service versus actually serving Jesus as a follower should. And Jesus today wants his followers to serve at an elite level. And that means radical, ambitious 
sacrificial service. And let's pray because he's got lots to say to us today. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we look at what Jesus teaches and models, that you would help our church to be a church where people do take following him and serving others seriously, sacrificially, in a costly way. And for those who don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus or not sure yet, we pray that today they will be struck by Jesus' costly, sacrificial death for them. Amen. Okay, so keep your Bibles open, page 801, I believe it was. Uh, First point, center of this passage is that conversation between the mother of James and John and Jesus. So verse 20, the mother of the Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. Do you notice three things? Number one is ambition. Uh, Just in case you think that Chinese people like where I'm from created the tiger mom, well, the answer is no. The first tiger mom was in the Bible. That's James and John's mom, right? She wanted them to succeed. It's a bit like tennis dads, you know, if you've seen King Richard. But um, I want you to notice it's not just her that's ambitious, right? It's not just the mum. In fact, the other gospel accounts, she doesn't even speak because basically her view is their view, James and John's view. And later when Jesus rebukes, he doesn't rebuke her. He rebukes them, James and John. But whatever the case, you'll notice it's intentional, it's bold, it's deliberate, it's, you know, couched in humility, like kneeling down. It's done indirectly through the mom. But you can bet that James and John really wanted this themselves. They, had the, they wanted to ask what the others didn't have the guts to ask. And number two, what is it that they wanted? They wanted power. So they recognize that Jesus is the king, the Messiah, God's promised king to restore God's rule, restore God's people. Now, if this is the case and he is the king, then the positions on either side of him, left and right, would be the two most powerful positions in his kingdom. So if this was a monarchy, right, Jesus was a monarch, then that would be like, say, wanting the prime minister plus the general of the army. If this was a democracy or a republic and Jesus is the president, then this would be saying, I want to be the vice president and I want to be the secretary of state. Okay, that's what left and right means. This was an ambitious power grab. Now, how did the other 10 disciples take it? Well, verse 24 says they were indignant. That's probably an understatement there. They're probably a little more than indignant, especially when you take into account a few factors, and that's substitution. See, what has Jesus said so far about his disciples? Um, In Matthew 19, 28, don't turn to it, but um, Jesus said that when he comes to renew all things, His 12 disciples, the 12, will sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel, right? All of them would be equally special and rewarded when he comes and is crowned king. And then even earlier in Matthew 16, verse 18, in fact, Jesus singled out one of them and he called Peter, remember, the chief disciple, he called him the rock on which he would build the church, right? Peter would be the first among equals, so you think about James's John, James and John's requests at this point. James and John's requests would have been trying to overturn everything that Jesus had already said. See, in order for them to shine as left and right, the two, you know, the two second in commands, they would have to replace the other ten. 
they would also have to step over Peter, step above all of them. They were, you see, substituting themselves for the others in this power grab. No wonder the other disciples were so cheesed off. So what's Jesus going to say to this? Well, he comes back to the theme that we've seen again and again in the last few chapters. Jesus says, you got it all wrong, remember? The last first, the first last. God works on an upside down economy. And that's my second point. Now, Jesus is going to teach it first, and then Matthew, the writer here, will illustrate it. So firstly, Jesus replies, verse 22, have a look there. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Now, I'm going to come back to the idea of the cup later on, but uh, you can read between the lines. It's something to do with Jesus' suffering, pain, and I'll come back to that. But verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. Okay, they will actually, right? What Jesus goes through, they will also in some way go through. Um, Historically, we know that James would actually be the first disciple to be executed for his faith. John would be the last disciple, but he would also die being exiled to a lonely island on his own. All right, so they will drink the cup. Jesus is making a prophecy, a prediction here. But then he says, but to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. Still in verse 23, these places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, Gentiles means non-Jews, he's talking about the Romans here, lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, him talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, right? A payment for freedom. That's what ransom means for many. So what Jesus is doing, he's taking that first will be last and last will be first principle, and he's applying it in another way. Last week, you remember, um, Pastor Marshall spoke on the parable, right? Where there was a principle of grace, the workers in the, you know, the, the vineyard. Everyone, no matter if you hide first or hide last, everyone was treated equally, Right? And in fact, the people who came last were paid first. That was how he applied it last week. Last will be first, first will be last. But the point is, we all receive God's generosity, whether first or last in. Now, this week, Jesus is going to take that same principle, and he's going to take it even further. He's saying, if you want to be first, and here, it's not not first to finish, but what he means here is first in honor, right? You want to be first in prestige. You want to be first in greatness, you got to take the last position. You've got to take the position that's the least in honor, least in prestige, least in greatness. Now, you get what Jesus is doing, right? He's taking Roman society and he's turning it upside down. The Romans, the Gentiles, and their rulers, verse 25, that's familiar to everyone, all his disciples that he was talking to, the whole society. Roman society was class-based, right up the top with nobility, Right? And then you've got a few rungs, and then you've got freed citizens, what they call the plebeians, go down a few rungs right at the bottom of society, were slaves. It was a very class-based society. We don't really understand that in Australia, but um, if you grew up in the UK, there's a little bit of that old class system still there. 
okay? And if you are top, right at the top of their world, even much more than ours, you, you, did, you, you acted like you were the top. You exercised power over others. The people below you, they exist to serve you, right? It's them for you. Now, I know we can sometimes feel like that in our own world, even though we don't have class you know, structures, but like in schools and unis, professional workplaces, like there is some hierarchy, isn't there? But even when this is the case, in our society, because we've had this Christian influence, we think that being humble is a virtue in Australia. We particularly don't like it when people in authority you know, act too much like they're greater than us. It's called the tall poppy syndrome, you've heard about, right? And we've actually inherited from the Bible. Humility is a virtue. Now, in Jesus' day, the Romans didn't value humility at all. It was actually a shameful, stupid thing in their eyes, which means if you had power, you used it to the max, right? There was no tall poppy syndrome. If you had power, you let everyone know you had power and you exercised it. And Jesus says, hey, that's how the world operates. And everyone then would have known exactly what that meant. But then he says to his followers, not so with you. Not with you. This is an upside down economy when it comes to God's kingdom. And he talks about a servant. What's a servant? Well, there are people who waited on tables. People who served and cleaned. See, no tiger mom would send their kid to university so that they can then be a cleaner. Right? There's nothing wrong with being a cleaner. It's a very noble thing. But tiger moms don't do that, right? Go to Sydney Uni, get a degree, get a master's degree, maybe something even more, so that you can become a waiter. No tiger mom wants that for their kids. Um, a slave, Jesus also uses the word slave, a slave is bonded to their master. A slave in the ancient world had no rights, you were the lowest of Roman society. No tiger mom would sell their kids into bonded slavery, all right? Now, see how radical Jesus is being here. He says, if you want to go up in my kingdom, you want to be up there, you got to go down. you got to go way down. And then you think that's down, you go even lower down. So to be a somebody, you've got to be a nobody. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, remember, he teaches it. But then we've got an illustration of it. Two powerful illustrations. The first illustration is pretty immediate. Um, Straight after this conversation, um, and Bill read the rest of the chapter, they meet two blind beggars. We won't read it again, but there's really interesting parallels. Firstly, there are two blind beggars, which is interesting because in, in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, they only mention one. Now, it's not that they, you know, it's not that this is a contradiction you can't solve. Probably Luke and Mark just wanted to mention one, but Matthew wanted to highlight that actually there were two because Matthew wanted these two blind beggars, I think, to contrast the two disciples that we've just seen. And see, they also come, these blind beggars, they also come to Jesus with a request. They also come in a position of humility, except theirs was real humility, right? Not a power grab that's couched in false humility. These guys, these blind beggars, had no choice. And then Jesus' question to them, which was really interesting, is almost identical to the question that he asked the mum. Right? What is it that you want? Now, James and John, remember, their request is denied, but the blind beggar's request is granted. Verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, 
Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Now, why was it that their request was granted? It's because they came with nothing as nobodies. Because they illustrated the exact principle Jesus had just taught. By the way, it's really interesting when you see these connections in the Bible, right? Often we kind of read them apart. But actually, when you read it in context, you see that there's actually a parallel. And that's a really great way of reading the Bible, by the way. Um, But note that right at the end of verse 34, they followed him. There were people that Jesus healed who didn't follow him. But these guys did. And I think Matthew is saying, you know what? You want to see real discipleship? You want to see real followers of Jesus? Look at these blind beggars. Not James and John. At this point, they didn't get it. Look at the blind beggars. These nobodies with nothing, they're real followers of Jesus. So that's the first illustration. But even more powerful than that is an illustration from Jesus himself. You see, why is it that James and John's request to Jesus was so outrageous? It's not just what they requested. It's when they requested it. Because they asked Jesus to be in this power position straight after Jesus had just predicted for the third time what was going to happen to him. So my final point. Verse 17, this is how the passage begins. Before they make the request, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, you put this together. With verse 28, which said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, what you have here is a roadmap, you see, to the kind of real discipleship that Jesus is talking about. Remember, it's easy to give lip service to the principle of being a servant, it's much harder to take it to the ambitious, costly, sacrificial pro-elite level that Jesus is talking about. Remember, he doesn't want hobby disciples. He wants real disciples. And this is a challenge to us because I, I want to say, I've been in church for a long time. And I tell you, in church life, we actually often use the world standard of greatness and we just dress it up in Christian terms. Sometimes in churches, we've worked out how to play the power game just like the world. And it's shocking and horrible. There's been some pretty big exposés of, you know, key church leaders who've been flaunting and using their authority, their wealth wrongly, or have been accused of things like bullying and intimidation and spiritual abuse. But you don't even have to look that far. I think in churches like ours, it's very easy to use power but dress it up with a currency of service. Now, what do I mean by this? I think often we use um, service, right, serving, to be a measure of importance in the Christian community. We use words like ministry. How much ministry? What ministry? can use it as a point of comparison or judgment, can't we? Right? Serving becomes a currency, for measuring power and prestige in churches. Now, if you don't believe me, ask yourself these questions. Why is it 
that church leaders get defensive when they're criticized? Why is it that church leaders quit when it gets hard? Why do church members like to criticize leaders and make demands of them? Pastors sometimes like customers in a store, almost as if we pay you to do this. We recognize your position. So why aren't you doing it well? Why do some churches split over these very issues? It's true, isn't it? Christ-like service has often been traded in churches for our own version of worldly power play. And the real tragedy is, of course, even the words we use. We use ministry or minister. Our ministry in, in, in the church is a badge of honor. What ministry are you doing? How much ministry are you doing? In some circles, the word minister is even higher than a pastor. So if you haven't been ordained, if you just fresh out of Bible college, your title is pastor. If you have been ordained, you become a minister. Maybe you get to be called reverend. See what's happened? These words have become measures of greatness in Christian terms. But let me tell you now what the word minister and ministry actually means. It's in verse 26. It's exactly the word for servant and service. And in verse 27, it's actually paralleled with the word slave. That's what a minister is, a servant. That's what ministry is, service. That's all it means. See, we glory in ministry and we glory in maybe becoming ministers, but Jesus says, you would, the way that Jesus used it, you would never choose it for yourself and you definitely wouldn't choose it for your kids as a career option, not in Jesus' day. And so that's what we need to do, don't we? We need to go back to the master, to Jesus. You want to know what servanthood, what ministry looks like? Look at Jesus. I want to show you the three same points about James and John. Ambition, power, substitution. Look what Jesus does to them. Firstly, ambition. Um, Jesus is not going to die by accident. His death, the way he died, was deliberate. It was intentional. It was what he decided to do. The Son of Man went up to Jerusalem, even though he knew that was going to be his death. And then what did he say? He will be delivered. He will be condemned. He will be handed over. He will be mocked. He will be flogged. He will be crucified. That's ambition. But ambition to do what? Verse 28, not to be served, but to serve. It's an upside-down ambition to the one that James and John just exercised, huh? And very upside-down to most of ours. Secondly, power. Verses 17 to 19, how does he exercise his power? Well, by having others exercise power over him. These verbs are all in the passive Voice, okay? Passive mean it's been done to you, delivered over like a lamb to the slaughter, right? And then he's the object of the next few verbs. He will be condemned. He will be handed over. He will be mocked. He will be flogged. He will be crucified. These are all things done to him. See, how can it be that the King of Kings, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Messiah would give up his power and become powerless, well, it's because this is how the kingdom works. 
the upside-down kingdom. This is what greatness looks like. Not exercising power over others, but have others even exercise power over you. And the thirdly, substitution. Verse 28, the Son of Man came to serve, not came, didn't to, uh, came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That really important word is the three-letter word for. It means here, instead of. Instead of many. See, Jesus suffered as a substitute. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was flogged, he was crucified as a substitute instead of others. Remember he talked about the cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup is the cup of God's anger against rebellious people. God prophesied that he would judge his people and he would hand them over in his judgment to the Gentiles, to the nations. But what does Jesus do? Jesus intentionally walked that road He drank that cup. He was handed over to the Gentiles. In other words, he suffered God's punishment instead of us. Instead of us. Brett uh, began just before confession. Remember, he talked about the reality of sin. You know, the the poo in a thing. Very memorable. So true, isn't it? The pollution. But you know what? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, Jesus can make you clean, wash you clean, because He took on your pollution instead of you. He died in your place. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, come back to Easter, because we'd love to tell you more about that. That's what we're celebrating in less than a week's time. He did that for us. So will you follow Him? He's worth following. So remember James and John, when it comes to substitution, they wanted to substitute themselves in the place of the other disciples, because they wanted to be great in their eyes. But that's not how it works. True greatness, greatness in the kingdom goes the other way. It's to substitute yourself in the place of others when it comes to suffering. You see, the world's attitude when you reach the heights of power is they exist for me. They serve me, them for me. In God's upside down kingdom, it's not them for me, it's me for them. Not just that I serve them, but also I would put myself in harm's way to suffer, to clean toilets, to do the menial stuff, to be dishonored, to feel pain, to be hurt instead of others so that they don't have to. So how far are you willing to go to serve others? You see, I reckon when it comes to serving others, and I'm here talking to Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are always limits, right? Um, Like it or not, when we serve others, ministry, church, life, It can be a gateway to actually serving what's deep in our hearts. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? Actually, you know, you're serving your idols in your hearts like respect because, hey, serve in certain ways. You can be respected. You can gain love and admiration from others. That might be an idol or prestige or or power. We've already looked at those. Sometimes we're honest with ourselves. Our motives aren't that pure, are they? Now, and you know, by the way, that you're serving idols ultimately, Because when you lose them or they become threatened, you're no longer gaining the respect, the prestige. People don't appreciate you when you're serving them. You just want to quit. Yeah, you want to quit. Why? Because my idol's not being fed anymore. I don't want to do ministry if it's going to not feed my... You see? Or maybe you're just afraid of losing these things. The potential loss of these things means that you serve as little as possible, if if at all. Even though... There are so many needs around you in the body of Christ. 
maybe you're just happy to just be served by others. Or maybe you thought, I've been there, I've done that. Right? No more. Let other people do it. Because serving others may mean no more sleep-ins on Sunday morning. It may mean you have to give up time and money. You may have to work alongside others in the relational mess that is serving together. It's not always easy. So you choose not to serve at all. Because like a hobbyist, you only do it if it doesn't cost you that much. You're like the chicken. You're involved, but not committed. If you are a follower of Jesus, and if Swek is your church, so I'm not, again, I'm not talking to everyone, but if you call this your church, so I'm not talking to the new people here, I'm not talking to you if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but if you are a follower of Jesus, and this is your church, the one you call home, can I ask you, are you actively serving at Swek? Are you? If not, why not? If you are, what might be making you want to stop serving or quit? Now, by the way, I'm posing these questions, and they're really actually good answers to the why not question, okay? Or the why do you want to have a break? Um, Maybe a good reason sometimes is maybe you're kind of newish and you're waiting to be asked. That's a good reason. Or maybe you actually do need a break because, you know, you're kind of burnt out. There's a lot happening in your life. It's just busy stage of life, all that kind of stuff. Good good reason. Um, Maybe um, you're currently serving in an area, but you're really not gifted in that. And you kind of think, this is not really working out. And I've tried, but it's not really. That's, that's, That's a good reason to maybe take a break or to, to do something else. Or maybe you're too afraid to have a go because you don't think you're gifted at all or you're intimidated by others who are. Yeah? Or maybe your main areas of service are outside of SWEC, and that's okay because of your stage of life opportunities, you're serving in other places. That's okay as well. Like, I'm not saying there are no good reasons. There are good reasons. And there's probably more that I haven't mentioned. But let's admit it, there are also bad ones, okay? And we know our own hearts sometimes. It's so easy to deceive ourselves, right? We well, don't want to serve, I want to quit. Because at the end of the day, we just, we just really don't take Jesus' teachings and his modeling seriously. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that serving at your local church is the be-all and end-all of serving or discipleship training. It's not the case at all. You can definitely be a Christian and not serve. But it should be the default. It should be the norm. And in fact, it is the best place, the best school, if you like, to learn discipleship, to learn service as you serve alongside others in the real way that Jesus is calling us to. So once again, ask yourself the the broader question. This is the real question. Is following Jesus, is a life of service for you an optional extra Are you a hobbyist when it comes to that? You get to dictate the terms. You get to set the limits. Or are you all in, fully committed? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as you challenge us, I pray for those who may be feeling rebuked and burdened. Help us to confess areas where we know we've been selfish or areas we know we've been slack, and embrace your forgiveness and also embrace repentance, and that is help us to change. We pray for those 
who are right now thinking, what can I do? How can I serve? We pray that you will help conversations and follow-ups to happen so that every member of the body of Christ here may be actively serving like you. And we pray that those who are serving, Father, it's sometimes really hard. And I know sometimes you feel discouraged or burnt out or overwhelmed, but help us to remember Jesus and the life of upside-down priorities that he calls us to. And please give us the power and the joy to keep on serving you, all for your glory. Amen.